When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast for May 2016. This month, getting to grips with limpet populations and sex determination in Swedish frogs. Frogs. A staple of lily ponds and school biology labs around the world, common frogs are one of the most recognisable creatures on the planet. So it may come as a surprise to find out that we don't know much about how they determine their sex. Okay, perhaps it isn't a surprise, but it is interesting. Common frogs, like many other animals, can have both genetic and environmental factors which help determine their sex. They can also switch sexes during development, and to make matters even more complicated, different populations of frogs can do things differently. One may be influenced more by the genetics, another by their environment. Nicolas Rodriguez from the University of Lausanne in Switzerland decided to work out what on earth was going on and turned his attention to two Swedish populations of frogs, one from the north of the country, another from the south. But before we get into that, let's have a bit of a frog sex determination 101, starting off with something we're all probably quite familiar with, X and Y chromosomes. Here's Nicholas. As soon as you have a Y gene in, in a given embryo, it should start producing some, uh, some sex-specific hormones, for example, testosterone, which is uh, also a good candidate for that. And um, it, will, uh, it will start to produce hormones, I think, later in the embryonic stages, closer to the metamorphosis. And it is believed that the embryos are, are vulnerable to environmental conditions up to uh, metamorphosis. And at that precise stage, they can still reverse this switch itself depends on the strength of, uh, of the genetic sex determination. And what kind of environmental factors could there be that are influencing sex determination? So I think the, the first candidate would be temperature. Uh, it's been shown that temperature affects sex ratios uh, at metamorphosis, for example. Then in other species, there have been many other factors shown to, to, to be involved. But uh, in amphibians, I'm not sure that, that we really have a proof that the others other factors could be playing a role. In your study, you've studied two different populations, both in Sweden, one in the north of Sweden and one in the south of Sweden. How do they differentiate in terms of their sex differentiation? The main difference between the north and the south was the correlation between how the pair of sex chromosomes is inherited and the sex of the offspring, which this association was perfect in the north, which means it's completely genetic, and it was not perfect in the south, which means that this precise pair of sex chromosomes is not as strong as in the north. And so then you wanted to go forward in this paper that you've just published in Heredity um, to try to explain why there would be this difference in the amount that genetics had an influence over, over sex determination in frogs. Yes, yes. So to be sure that in the south that sex determination would be 
weaker and only controlled by this pair of sex chromosomes, we needed to check the other pairs of chromosomes. And uh, one hypothesis was that there was another one, another pairs of sex chromosomes involved in sex determination in the South, and it turned out that there was none. And actually, it was the other way around. We found a second pair of sex chromosomes in the North, which then was associated with a stronger genetic sex determination, while in the South, in families where the, the, the association between the first pair of sex chromosomes and sex of the offspring was weak, it means that there might be a stronger epigenetic component to sex determination. And, and so do you have any hypothesis as to why this northern group of frogs would want to use a different, or why it would be beneficial for a northern group of frogs to have a different method through which it determines its sex? So the, um, the main hypothesis for that is that since the climate is, is more rough in the, in the north, there are more fluctuations of temperature from one year to another. There, there can be really cold waves or, uh, or warm waves from, from a season to the next. And having a strong genetic sex determination means that the sex ratio will be more stable and frogs will be less susceptible to, to fluctuations of the environment. It prevents frogs from, from being born all females because there, was, there, there has been too cold one year and then if you have only females, you have no males to, to mate with. So this is a problem for the, for the dynamics of the population. And do you expect to find this kind of thing elsewhere in the world? Yes, yes. So uh, within the same species, we, we also expect that, in, for example, in the Alps, I mean, any, anywhere where the, the climate is, is colder and uh, fluctuates more. But we know of very good examples of this in fish species and uh, reptile species as well. For example, there is a, a reptile species in, in Australia which lives on a, an altitudinal gradient. And we know that in some higher in, in altitude, the, its sex determination is genetic, while in, southern, in, in lower altitude, it's, it's more environmental factors are stronger than genetic factors. That was Nicolas Rodriguez from the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. I remember very well going down to the seaside as a child, looking in rock pools and coming across slipper limpets. Those stacks of smooth gels which cling to rocks all over the coasts of Europe and North America. But in many places, slipper limpets, or Crepidula fornicata to give them their Latin name, are not native. They were introduced into Europe in the early 20th century and have spread throughout the European coast ever since. This piqued the interest of Florentine Riquet from the University of Montpellier in France. She wanted to find out more about the genetics which go along with the success of these limpets. So she set out to study a French population of limpets from the Bay of Morlaix in Brittany. Her initial focus was to investigate their population, in particular, their effective population. This is distinct from another type of population called the census population. Here's Florentine to explain. So it's very important to decipher the effective population size to the census population size. So we have the census population size, it's everyone, but the effective population size, it's only the, the individual who, is going, who are going to contribute to the next generation. So only, only the ones that can reproduce at any given time. Exactly. So no babies, no old people. And you've been studying a particular marine species. It's known by some people as a slipper shell or a type of limpet. How does effective population size compare to census population size in these sorts of mollusks that live in the sea? It has been shown that it should be reduced by 86%. 
And so why do you have this big difference between effective population size and total population size, census population size? So it could be, for instance, in marine species, it could be due to the high larval mortality if there is a larval phase. And so why is effective population size as a measure interesting to ecologists and geneticists? The effective population size is very important, for instance, for adaptation to environmental change. So the fact that you have a very high effective population size, you may have a lot of diversity on which selection could act. The sleeper limpet is an invasive species. So our first hypothesis was the fact that the effective population size was very, very large. So that's why it was successfully introduced in France or in Europe. And so you went to study this population size. And tell me, how did you do that? So there is a population in Brittany that was monitored over a long period of time. And so each year, we sampled juveniles over nine years. And from the juveniles, we extracted DNA and we amplified microsatellites. So that means genetic markers. And from the genetic markers, we observed the genetic diversity over juvenile samples over time. And we observed the fluctuation of it, and from it, we estimate the effective population size. And so you analysed all of these juveniles. What did you find? What were you expecting, and then what did you actually find? The effective population size was estimated to be a few hundreds, so that's more important than we observed in other marine species in Brittany. But actually, it's quite reduced in regard of the census size of the population. So what kind of numbers are we talking about here, then? The effective population size was estimated to be a few hundreds in regard to the census size that was estimated to be millions of individuals. You got more granular than that as well. It wasn't just about this census population versus effective population. You also looked at the recruitment over time because you have nine years' worth of data here. And you found out that the number of juveniles um, that were being produced every year varied quite, quite significantly. Exactly. For instance, in 2009, we did not observe a lot of juveniles, but in contrary, in 2006 or 2007, it was very a uh, high number of recruits. And so from a genetic perspective then, what is the key to the success of these slip Olympics? Uh, the first hypothesis was selection, the fact that many, many individuals were introduced in Europe, and so that means like lots of genetic diversity on which selection could act. But actually, we did, we did not find any selective events, so that was not true. It's not because of selective pressure. It's not because they've got a particularly gigantic effective population size. So do you have any theories about why, why these limpets might be doing so well in this area? Yeah, to my mind, it's thanks to life history traits of the sleeper limpet. The fact that, for instance, the reproduction is very effective. Besides, the female can release millions of larvae per reproductive event, and females um, reproduce from two to five times per reproductive season. So, yeah, the reproductive system is very, very efficient and may contribute to the success of this species. That was Florentine Riquet from the University of Montpellier. And with that, we've reached the end of another Heredity podcast. Tune in again next month and thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 